This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second episode where we discuss Shakespeare's most famous political drama, Julius Caesar. Last week we focused on the life of the real Julius Caesar. We gave some history as to who he was as a man, as well as some of the other significant players as we prepared to dive into the play. And this week we're getting into Act Two, and I believe we could probably accurately title this delusions of grandeur do they bring destruction true we pointed out how shakespeare was writing a history and a lot of it is history more than you would think is actually grounded in fact however he does try to condense a very long story into a short play relatively short compared to how long the story is so there are several cuts that he chooses to take Knowing that his audience was really familiar with the story, but also knowing that he's not just telling the story, he's presenting a perspective of the story, which, of course, is something every person does when they relay events, whether they're thinking about it or not. That's absolutely correct. Even when historians are writing history, they do the same thing. Plutarch certainly was not exempted from highlighting certain events when he was recording Caesar's history. And as we choose to pick out the elements of this play that we will feature, we will do no different. For our purposes, we are going to focus our perspective of analyzing this play, not really on the literary side of things, although Christie could discuss the blank verse and the use of allusions and imagery and so forth, which she may do a little. But we see in this play a more interesting perspective, a question that seems to be driving a lot of this perspective and has a lot of relevance for modern-day readers. The key question Shakespeare asks and seems to answer is a historical one as well as a political one, 
and one that people have been asking about a lot of political figures since man has organized himself in the government. The question centers around Brutus, and is Brutus right in killing Julius Caesar? Remember, back in Shakespeare's day, this question was one school children were regularly asked to think about and discuss. Shakespeare's opinion on this is not as straightforward as a simple and obvious up or down, although he does get to a yes-no answer in the end. His answer seems to involve presenting a nuanced picture of who Brutus is. Brutus is not a straw man. He is not a flat character. And today, as we discuss the rest of Act 1 and all of Act 2, that is going to become evident. That is actually a great contrast to how he's portrayed Julius Caesar himself. Caesar in this play is ridiculously simple. He's arrogant, comedically arrogant almost, and he's also sickly, like physically sickly. And that's about it. Brutus is fleshed out in a very involved way. Act two especially focuses almost exclusively on Brutus the man, his thinking, his philosophy, that he's built his life on, the flaws in his character, those things that ultimately are going to produce his downfall. But in some ways, things that these same things people have found redemptive over the years. So looking at Brutus is going to be the entire focus of this episode. However, before we get into that, I do want to revisit this idea uh, that Shakespeare intentionally is choosing to um, reveal particular events and settings. And he's picking certain settings among many that he could have picked to feature when he retells the story. The story takes place in hundreds of locations. The ones he highlights sometimes are for kind of entertainment purposes. For example, he consolidated two huge events into the Feast of Lupercalia. Lupercalia is kind of an unusual holiday for the modern mind. And I think the 1600s may not have been a whole lot different. I have to tell you, there are not very many students can who can listen to the description about boys running around hills hitting girls with whips without snickering just a little bit. But mostly he's choosing these settings because they, too, are telling a story. <laughs> uh, very true. And I also suspect play attenders at the time would be interested in seeing how he chose to portray the soothsayer, a real person, and the very lively and wild Antony crowning Caesar and that whole debacle. Yes, but even Flavius and Morellus were real people who did real things in a way, although not exactly as Shakespeare portrays them. He does maintain the spirit of what they did. It's interesting to point out that we don't actually see Caesar being crowned by Antony. We hear that from Casca. That's not the setting. What we see is Brutus, and we see him being seduced by Cassius as he strokes his ego. Good point, and I guess this is a good place to drop into the story, uh, recap where we left off, and see what it is about Brutus that Shakespeare finds so compelling. In Act 1, Scene 1 and 2, Caesar triumphantly enters Rome, and while Antony is trying to make him king in a very public way, Cassius approaches Brutus and attempts to persuade him to overthrow Caesar. Cassius' very famous quote, perhaps made most famous by John Green in his novel Fault in Our Stars, suggests to Brutus, after describing Caesar as weak and as a sick girl, that men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, 
is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. He goes on to say that the name of Brutus is just as good as that of Caesar, even though Caesar has grown so large and they have grown so weak. And he begins this ego feeding into Brutus that convinces him to draw his own conclusions, as we will see that he does in Act 2, to kill Caesar. I do want to pick up here in this monologue of Cassius as we begin our discussion today, because this play, if we want to decide if Brutus is justified in killing Caesar, it's important to understand who exactly is Brutus in terms of his past, and why does he feel it so important to link his personal identity with the identity of his country. So historically speaking, Gary, who is Brutus? All right. Well, we talked about his military career and his stint with Pompey, but what I think you're alluding to is his family history. Uh, You're right in bringing out its relevance here. His ancestor, Lucius Brutus, is known to have overthrown the Etruscan king and was dubbed founder of the Roman Republic. His mother was the half-sister of Cato, and his wife, Portia, we will see, is Cato's daughter. Uh, Cato being another super influential family in Roman history. This man had huge shoes to fill. I'm not sure that we can really understand this type of legacy in the United States because our history isn't long enough. But a lot of Europeans understand the burdens of being in families that have long traditions and perhaps even uh, some mythical legends of historical greatness. Obviously, in Europe, history is longer and there are known family legacies that extend back hundreds of years. And with such legacies, there's a sense, a strong sense of family pride, of family responsibility. It would be like if you went to an American comparison as if there was a descendant today who knew He was Thomas Jefferson's or George Washington's heir and felt connected and responsible for the future of democracy in his country uh, as if it were his personal possession. And that brings me back to Cassius's monologue because he baits Brutus with these lines. Rome, thou hast lost the breed of noble bloods. When went there by an age since the great flood, but it was famed with more than with one man. When could they say till now that talked of Rome that her wide walks encompass but one man? So it's personal in some sense. It's his, it's his family legacy at stake. And we see that this line of reasoning appeals to Brutus. He responds by saying, Brutus had rather be a villager than to repute himself a son of Rome under these hard conditions as this time is like to lay upon us. In other words, he's saying like, like heck, I'm going to let Rome go to pot under my watch. My ancestors would be ashamed of me. His attempt to bait Brutus does not lie at its core in this idea that Caesar has done all these bad things and we need to seek revenge for them. It doesn't accuse Caesar really of anything specific. He begins by saying, you, Brutus, are what this country is made of. If only you could know how everyone loves and admires you. That's a great point. Cassius starts with the greatness of Rome and expresses it through the personhood of Brutus, and he's not really going to have to extend his argument much farther than that. Uh, I do want to open a brief parenthesis here from our discussion of Brutus as we prepare to jump into scene three of Act One, because to understand scene three of Act One, which is isn't exactly about Brutus. We're going to take a little Brutus break. Uh, You need to understand a little bit about Elizabethan theater and the globe, and it may seem a little tangential, but I think it it matters. 
a few years ago, uh, my father took me to England and we went to visit the Globe Theater. Yes, that place actually exists. It didn't for about 400 years, but an ex-patriot American and Shakespeare enthusiast by the name of Sam Wanamaker spent almost his entire life fundraising and getting the resources together to rebuild the Globe. And although he died before it was able to open, it did open in 1997. But all that to say, the Globe Theater that is in London today, and it's walking distance from St. Paul's Cathedral and as close to the original site as possible, was recreated to be as close as a replica of the original Globe as you would want to make. And, you know, we want to have some modern conveniences. Like but, bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he made them to the specifications of those built by Lord Chamberlain's men, which was Shakespeare's company. Anyway, uh, my dad and I, we saw three plays there, and it was thrilling, as you can imagine. But what I learned by being there, uh, and I guess people would know this if you just think about it, is that it's an outdoor theater. It's partly covered. Nowadays, the part of the stage is covered. But here's the point. During Shakespeare's day, if Shakespeare wanted you to know that it's in the middle of the night, he had to make a character say it's midnight because there's not anything. It's there's not anything no there. <laughs> no, he couldn't just dim the the lights. The play would be performed in the middle of the afternoon, and there isn't any kind of special effects in that sense. This matters because scene three and all of Act two are going to take place at night, and we will see that not just at night that they taste take place exactly one month after the Lupercal on the evening of March. 14th into the 15th, depending on how you want to look at time. Uh, Of course, this is heavily laden with symbolism, the night, the date, the weather. It's starting uh, a conspiracy in the dark, some sort of indication of evil. Uh, But there's a storm that's occurring in this scene, and this is a huge deal for Roman culture. And I will say that even though Shakespeare doesn't have lights, so you can't turn lights on and off, He did have special effects in some sense for thunder and lightning because you can make sounds. And this is kind of a fun fact about the globe. Uh, Shakespeare's company, and you can just imagine a bunch of dudes because, you know, there are no women in the theater coming up with special effects. Uh, They obviously went out of control. And we know this because um, in a famous performance in 1613 of Henry VIII, they accidentally burned the entire theater down, exactly, doing these kind of crazy special effects. So for those of you who thought that pyromaniacs were just a modern thing, no, no, no. That (laughs) Fire is always fun uh, until you burn down the theater. Mm. But back to scene three. Um, Scene three is going to take place during a storm. Now, this matters not just because it's fun for the audience to have firecrackers in a play and you want to make um, dark noises to be ominous, but for the Romans, this is important for religious reasons and perhaps even historical uh, reasons that go with the culture. Yes, it's actually an important religious point to make. Uh, Romans believed the weather was very much tied to the activities of the gods. And many people, of course, um, have studied the Greek and subsequent Roman gods who basically were animating forces in the world. There's lots of myths and, and stories. But this had a practical application to real life and is what Shakespeare is pointing out. When things happen in nature like um earthquakes, events in the stars or whatever, people look to the heavens to hear the voices of the gods. 
And omens, uh, a little like in Paulo Coelho's works, are very important. If the gods disapproved of something, they let you know through signs and birds and weather and physical illnesses even. The temples that were in the Roman form were places where a person would go to seek an opinion of the gods. They would present sacrifices of dead animals, and special women sometimes through hallucinogenic drugs would listen to the gods and give answers from the gods, which we've actually been to the oracle where that occurred. This was at the heart of their worldview, and in scene three, when the skies are going crazy with thunder and lightning, this is something that drew the attention of most Romans. It's actually recorded in Plutarch's history that before Caesar's death, there were horrible storms, and these are going to be relayed in the story. Well, just like in religious life today, although everyone was seeing the exact same turn of events, the various religious interpretations could be endless, and finding the proper interpretation of what the gods were actually trying to say dominates the conversations that Shakespeare features in scene three, which is what we're going to see. In scene three, we see Cicero and Casca. Casca is a conspirator, but Cicero is not. The names can get kind of overwhelming. There's a lot of C names. There is. and You just have to remember, C stands for conspirator, except for Cicero, because he's not one. But anyway... Uh, they're discussing these series of events, and everyone has seen these things. There's a slave that was hit by lightning, and his hand catches fire, but it doesn't burn up. More interestingly enough, there's a wild lion that seems to be walking around town. A hundred women are seeing men uh, of fire walking in the streets. And after all that, this might seem boring, but they thought it was important to note that there was an owl sitting in the middle of the town in the middle of the day. And, of course, the owl is a very significant bird and a night owl, duh. So Cicero, who actually is a historian in his own right, and we're going to get into a little bit of that because he interprets a lot of the history of Caesar with his letters. Um, He says to Casca, well, men may construe things after their fashion. In other words, you, in your mind, are going to say what the signs mean. That's not God talking. That's you talking. Casca doesn't buy that. He thinks, no, no, the gods are sending signs. And when he runs into Cassius, Cassius tells him what they mean. Well, they mean that the gods are mad and they're worked over because of this old Caesar becoming king business. And the fierceness of the storm is because the next day the Senate plans to make Caesar a king. And that's where we find out that uh, March 14, 44 B.C. is the famous date that lives in infamy as the day of Caesar's murder is the next day. Of course, the legends and the tales of the times tell us that on March 14th, there were tons of storms. But how do you know if that's true or that's just something that people have made up over the years? But in some sense, Shakespeare is taking historical fact into consideration. And along those lines, another historical note to bring out, for those who are inclined, Cicero, uh, who appears here too and who Antony is going to have killed later on, is a huge player in real Roman history. He actually is the most important man in Rome in Caesar's day, and his name carried weight beyond what I can really describe here. Um, He's most famous for his role in 63 BC, whereas council he discovered and destroyed a conspiracy to overthrow the Roman government. Ironically, he is not invited to participate in this conspiracy led by Brutus and Cassius. All right, I think that 
points out everything we want to point out in Act 1. So let's open the curtain now to Act 2. And Act 2 takes place at Brutus's estate in his orchard and in his house. Again, remember, we can't know what time it is uh, through the lighting, so we have to look at the language, and Shakespeare is going to tell us. What, Lucius? Ho, I cannot, by the progress of the stars, guess how near today. So in other words, oh, look, Mm. stars, it's night. It's the middle of the night. Lucius is asked to go get a candle, or a taper is the word they use, and he's going to come back in a minute with all these letters that we know Cassius is responsible for writing. That came up before. So Cassius's plan to seduce Brutus involves writing a bunch of letters and throwing it over the wall into his house to Brutus to find and think, oh, so-and-so wants me to overthrow Caesar. Oh, this person wants me to overthrow Caesar. Oh, everyone wants me to overthrow Caesar. So while Lucius is out getting the candle and finding all these letters, we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse inside the mind of Brutus. And it's actually quite shocking. The first line tells us that Brutus has already made the jump to murder. Let me read this. He says this, it must be by his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn at him, but for the general. I want to point this out. Doesn't it seem a little awkward to use the word seduce when you're trying to create a conspiracy theory to topple the government? (laughs) I know, but I really think it's a good word because I don't know what else. I mean, he's moving in his mind and getting him to do something that he wouldn't really. I don't know. That's that's the word that comes to my mind. Perhaps it's an awkward word. (laughs) Well, I think it's a funny word. Uh, But there's no doubt Cassius is highly manipulative, and he's wanting to use Brutus for political purposes. And anyway, we were were talking about this jump to murder, and that is a big jump from where he was in his discussion with Cassius just one month before. I don't remember Cassius using the word murder or assassination so openly. Um, He leads Brutus to this, but it seems Brutus, in some sense— thinks he's making up his own mind, whether he is or isn't. That's right. He implies it, but Brutus is going to take the jump as if it's his idea, and he's going to defend this idea of preventive assassination. So let me read the whole monologue, and then I want to talk about, get your ideas of what you think about Brutus's theory for why he should kill uh, Caesar. He says this, He would be crowned. How that might change his nature. There's the question. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder. The adder is a snake. So he's saying it's the day that it's going to bring a snake that craves weary walking. Crown him that, and and then I grant we put a sting in him that at his will he may do danger with. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. And to speak truth of Caesar... I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason, but tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, and when the climber upward turns his face, but when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may, then lest he may prevent." And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that when he is augmented, would run to these and these extremities, and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched, would as his kind grow mischievous, and kill him 
in the shell. So we see this idea of a prevented assassination. Caesar not Caesar must be killed not for anything he's done, but what he may do in the future. Crown him, and this might be what he might do. He might abuse his power. He says, I know that lowliness is young ambition's ladder. In other words, when people get ambitious, they go to the top, and then they kicked out the ladder, and everyone that helped got them there, they betray. And he says this, again, this metaphor of the serpent. He says, He's a serpent's egg, and he's a he's the snake. And is it easier to kill the snake while it's in the egg, or is it easier to kill him after he's hatched? So he may be a tyrant. So I must remove him before he grows strong. What do you think, Gary? Well, that that does uh, go back to Shakespeare's idea of the basic question he's begging you: Is this the right thing to do to do this preemptively? As far as history goes. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. The United States has several examples where they've done preemptive things to topple governments. Uh, every country in Europe, every country on every continent has done something politically to destabilize a potential enemy. So it's it's common. It's why we have spy agencies in all the major nations of the world. <laughs> so And yet to the injury. common person like me, it seems a little unfair to kill someone for something that they haven't done yet. True. And when those things come to the surface for the public, the public has negative reactions because the public doesn't want to view their country as a country that unfairly goes around killing leaders. But I hate to spoil everybody's parade here, but it's what happens. It's what every major country does. And But here's what you need to point out, and we need to point out for the purpose of this play. You can take out a potentially future dangerous leader, but you will never be able to control the circumstances after you destabilize that region. When you destabilize a government or a a region anywhere, uh, even with the best of intentions, it very quickly spins out of control, and no modern power has been able to prevent that from happening. Well, that doesn't even look like it's crossed Brutus's mind, at least not here. Brutus is on a a one track. Yeah. Well, the conspirators are going to show up in cloaks, and there's a reference to the Greek god Erebus, who is actually just the personification of darkness. So we see, again, dark upon dark. Uh, Brutus is just uh, vain, and perhaps he's more vain than he is intelligent. But more than that, I think he's too idealistic in some ways to be successful at anything. Another point Shakespeare, I think, is really trying to make is pie-in-the-sky idealism Is that the same thing as nobility? Is it noble to have these high, lofty things that you believe in? Or is that just stupid? One thing that we saw in the life of Frederick Douglass is that he was not idealistic. He went for the practical. He wanted to live in the real world and do things that would really work. Brutus isn't like this. And perhaps this is going to be his ruin. Because when the conspirators are going to get here in the middle of the night in their little cloaks... They're going to have some very important decisions to make. And Brutus is going to go up against and defy Cassius basically at every point and insist to have his way. Yes. So first, Cassius wants them to swear allegiance to one another. Brutus nixes that. He says that only priests, cowards, and liars need to swear because no one believes their word. That is so funny to me. I don't know if it was a common thing in Shakespeare's day. I haven't read anything about that. But this idea of lumping priests with cowards and liars 
from my vantage point, seems kind of like a funny dig at the clergy. (laughs) Well, of course. Uh, But basically, uh, he's saying we're such noble people. Our word is our bond, and we don't have to swear. We're above those average people. Um, Of course, this doesn't mean anything one way or another in a practical sense. It's just a strange power struggle. And uh, perhaps since Cassius suggested it, he seems against it. Or it it just is this heightened sense of, I'm always right, not my nobility under myself cannot be questioned. And therefore, it's beneath me to swear to anything. I think it seems as both things are going on. And uh, anyway, Cassius asked if they could include Cicero. And some of the other conspirators see value in it. True, but Brutus is going to shoot this down again, and it comes across as arrogant to me. He says, well, he will never follow anything that other men began. And you have to think, well, is that the pot calling the kettle? (laughs) Indeed. I think it's Brutus who is proving that he's not going to follow any other men. He has totally taken over the decisions, and he insists on having every single thing on his terms. Well, and then there's this third reason, which is the truly fatal one, the one that actually matters. Cassius wants to kill Antony, and Cassius begins to do what Brutus has not done nor ever does, look beyond killing Caesar. He sees Antony as a rival. Brutus seems to think that everyone will just naturally follow him because he's just that awesome. (laughs) Who else would they follow? There is no other natural threat. And Brutus gives a strange answer. He says this, Our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius, to cut the head off and then hack the limbs, like wrath and death and envy afterwards. For Anthony is but a limb of Caesar. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers. Well, that seems so noble in this language. Let's be sacrificers and not butchers. But we're going to see that the blood imagery begins to dominate the play. It starts here, and it's not going to let up. Uh, Brutus actually, when he does murder, does exactly these things, and this seems ridiculous. He's going to get blood. He's going to wipe it all over himself. He's going to make himself look exactly like a butcher uh, when the time comes. So what he says and what he does don't really match up. And, of course, Cassius has better judgment, um, but he doesn't. He can't. He feels helpless. He feels like I can't lose Brutus' support. And so he has to agree to Brutus's terms. I think that at this point, Brutus is getting slightly annoying. He's slightly annoying to me when I read it. And there's a clue that Shakespeare thinks he might be getting annoying too at this point. Yeah, and obviously you begin to see some elements of groupthink take over with the group right here. And and groupthink is interesting because it's this this idea that uh, group cohesiveness is cohesiveness is so important that we're going to stop thinking creatively and we're going to actually start abandoning individual responsibility and the group now runs the show and individuals don't well in the conspiracy i don't know how you can avoid it because everyone has to stay in or it's so what do you got to do but anyway this play at this point in the play it gets a little silly because there's a clock to strike now that makes no sense They don't have clocks. (laughs) They were using sundials at best. So this is what we call an anachronism. That's when you take something that couldn't possibly have existed and you put it in the play. And sometimes it's just ridiculous. It'd be like if you're having a a cowboy movie out west and 
one of the Indians riding down the horse pulls out a cell phone and says, <laughs> incoming, incoming. And you're right. like, what? So yeah. in some sense, that's what we see going on here. The clock is going to strike three, and that means they all leave. And we're going to meet the second woman in this play. There are only two women in the play, Portia and Calpurnia, and they're foils. Uh, that A foil is uh, a literary term. Basically, it's a character that has another character that can be contrasted with them. So there's only two women, so it's natural to compare them. And one's strong in some sense. That's going to be Portia. And one's weak uh, in another sense. So that's how they're different. How they're the same is that they're both basically completely and utterly ignored, which is a point that um, people have said makes Shakespeare something of a feminist. Now, I, I'm always interested when, when <laughs> people... Use, yes, well, Shakespeare, to me, uses a lot of language that would be seems chauvinistic all the time. Oh, you're so womanish. He calls people womanish Sickly all the time. Girl. Yes, and he means it as a slam. But in this case, uh, people have said that this is an expression of his feminism because both of these women are ignored and they shouldn't have been. And perhaps this is a point uh, that was that is common. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, Portia, the strong woman, is married to Brutus and Calpurnia, the weak one, is married to Caesar. Why do you think that's interesting? This, the, since they're foils, which is the literary device we're talking about here, you give uh, Brutus, who's potentially the weak man, with Caesar, who's the strong man. So you've paired them with opposites. Oh, that's a good point. Well, another point that I think you can't um, underestimate is the power of Portia's uh, historical character. She is just as every bit as historically uh, blue-blooded as her husband so when she comes up to him in the middle of the night and she makes claim to, to knowing what's going on, she comes to him and she says, I'm not just a woman. That's another thing. I'm not just a woman. What's Shakespeare talking about? Of course, you're not just a woman. You are a woman. But she's going to make this thing claim. I'm not just a woman. I'm Cato's daughter. He's important. And I'm your wife and you're important. And so I know something's going on. I can see there's men in the middle of the night roaming around the house and she says this, Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? If it be no more, Portia is Brutus's harlot, not his wife. So you're treating me like the other woman if you refuse to tell me what's going on. And then she takes it one step further. She goes, I'm going to prove to you how strong I am. And she takes out a knife and gives herself a voluntary wound. In other words, she stabs herself. See, I'm strong. I can stab myself. So you should tell me your secret. Now, <laughs> she really wants to know that secret. Badly. Yes. And uh, you would think, how does that make you strong? But actually, that is a historical event that Plutarch mm. actually records. She did at some point slash her thigh with with a razor. And as you would suspect, there were unintended consequences. She's going to get it infected and there's a fever and she has a big scar. She does recover from the scar and she shows it in real life. She shows it to Brutus and to show her how tough and patriotic she is because for Romans, if you could endure pain, that means you're something. And so Portia is something. And she says, you have to tell me, you have to tell me. And uh, we think but he's going to. He says, okay, fine, I'll tell you. But right before he gets to tell, telling her, uh, somebody shows up and interrupts them. And 
then of course uh, they leave. And I do want to point out that it's still thundering. <laughs> still thundering outside. So mm. that's going to take us through scene one. Scene throne is all about Brutus and his processes and how this conspiracy is going to be construed. And then scene two, we're going to switch over to Caesar's house. Uh, and in some sense, you know, people are always saying, who are the foils? Who are the foils? Because Shakespeare plays always have foils. And in some sense, Brutus and Anthony are foils because they're going to duke it out after the murder. And they're they're both under Shakespeare and they both have his confidence. And in some ways, they're very opposite. Anthony is a playboy and he's wild. And Brutus is a bit bookish and a thinker and idealistic, unlike Anthony. But I think, and in a deeper sense, Shakespeare... And, I mean, Shakespeare's creating Caesar and Brutus to be somewhat foils, too, because they're both clearly arrogant men uh, who want to rule. And here is Caesar uh, dealing with his wife. So Calpurnia has had a dream, and she's super frightened. And historically, this is accurate, too. She did have a dream the night of her uh, of Caesar's death, and she begs him not to go. What she sees is strange, and it's not just the dream that she sees is strange. She's heard about all the lions. She's heard about all the things that are happening around town. And then uh, her dream is about uh, a statue. There's a statue, and it's spewing blood, and all the blood that comes out. People are getting under the statue, and they're bathing in Caesar's blood. Well, Caesar hears her lines, and he says, Oh, that could be an omen, but... It's for other people. It's not for me. And he talks about himself in the third person. And he says, Caesar shall go forth. These predictions are to the world in general as to Caesar. And she's going to say, no, nobody cares if beggars die. They don't have omens for dumb people. If there's an omen in the world, it's going to be for somebody important. And that's going to be you. To which he famously replies the line that, Lots of chi- lots of children recite or hear their mothers recite. Do you know it? Oh, I do. Should I read it in the Shakespeare English-friendly version? Of course you should read okay. it. Okay. <laughs> the line is, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The brave experience death only once. Now read it in Shakespeare speak. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. I actually really like that quote. Yeah, it's very insightful. Because it is true. You know, cowards do die many times before their death. They never stand up for themselves. So every time they're put to shame, a little bit of them dies inside. But if you stand up to the bully and he takes your lunch and you punch him in the face... Simmer down now. Well, he may punch you back, but at least you have your dignity and your glory. He can only punch you back once. And so. you died only once. Yeah, so it's a nice thing, and he's definitely true. I'm not sure how applicable it is to what's going on here. Um, he says this, Caesar shall not stay home. Danger knows full well that Caesar is more dangerous than he. We are two lions littered in one day, and I, the elder, more terrible Caesar shall go forth. I love that idea. I'm going to read it in the in the uh, the the what we call the uh, No Fear Shakespeare version. Oh dear, where he says, "Danger knows that Caesar is more dangerous than he is." <laughs> it's not like a Chuck Norris line. It is a Chuck Norris line. They made Caesar into Shakespeare made Caesar into Chuck Norris. That's exactly what's <laughs> okay. happening here. Well, he finally 
decides to stay. She just begs and begs, and he goes, fine, I won't go. Until this guy named Decius shows up. Now, this actually, if you if you care anything about historical accuracy, is a misspelling. It's not the right guy. Uh, the guy's actual name was Decimus, but I don't know that that matters. But anyway, this guy shows up to take him to the um, to to the capital, and Caesar says, "No, I'm not going. My wife won't want me to go." And and Decius is, knows that he's got to get this guy there. The whole conspiracy depends on him getting him to the spot. And he says, well, tell me why. And he says, well, I don't have to tell you anything, but I will because I love you so much. And he says, Calpurnius had this dream. And he tells Decius the dream. And Decius <laughs> says, oh, no, you've misinterpreted the dream. Okay, I understand they were bathing in your blood, but it's not because you're dead and they're getting in the blood. It's just because everyone wants a little bit of you. And of course they're gonna bathe in their in your blood if they could. Well, Caesar's gonna listen to that and he's gonna say, "Well, obviously that's the right interpretation because <laughs> that's the one that favors me." <laughs> yeah, they should have been both been listening to Cicero. But so he goes, "Oh, I feel silly that I even considered listening to you." Lucius also says this, and this is really where the 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 baiting gets even worse. He said, "Besides." The Senate has concluded to give you the crown today. And if they found out that you stayed home because of your wife, they might not want to give it to you at all. It's not very manly. <laughs> it's not manly. Back to that womanish thing. Mm-hmm. So Caesar says, how foolish do your fears seem now, Capernaum? I'm ashamed I did yield to them. Give me my robe, for I will go. And of course, they take the robe and Decius marches him into the capital, which is also a historically accurate thing. Scene three of Act Two is extremely short, but it's interesting only because it's rooted in historical fact. There was a man named Artemidorus or Artemidorus. I'm not exactly. I like Artemidorus better. <laughs> well, anyway, this guy was a Greek professor of rhetoric, and he had actually instructed. He was the speech teacher for every single one of these conspirators, and he had found out, I guess, in class or whatever, what they were doing. And he writes a letter, and he's gonna like tell Caesar this whole plot, and he passes the note to Caesar. And tries to tell him, according to Plutarch, Caesar tried several times to read this note, but he keeps getting interrupted. And this is kind of fleshed out in the play. Artemidorus reads the whole letter out loud. He says, Caesar, beware of Brutus. Take heed of Cassius. Don't come near Casca. Have an eye to Senna. Don't trust Tyrannus. And he names every single one of these conspirators. But Shakes Caesar never does read the letter. And of course, history will tell us that the plot goes on. As planned. Well, I guess I can make a pun here and say, even though he didn't read the letter, he got the point. Ah, uh, <laughs> that's terrible. I know that was such a cutting <laughs> remark. Well, the soothsayer shows up again too, and and the soothsayer soothsayer gives it a go, and he ignores the soothsayer. I think it might be interesting to point out that he really didn't believe that these guys would do this. Every single one of these conspirators owed something. To Caesar, he had given them something in a personal way, and there was no reason for him to really suspect that they would turn on him, and yet they did. And of course, that's where Act Two will leave us. And that would be one of Shakespeare's statements on the nature of power. 
and where we get the phrase stab you in the back which we're <laughs> <laughs> i guess yes mm. all right well i guess that wraps up act two Great. Okay. So we covered a lot of ground there today. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Um, We'll pick up next time and see what happens to all of our characters in uh, Shakespeare's great work. And uh, if you enjoyed being with us, then please go check us out on howtolovelitpodcast.com. Check out the teaching materials, uh, all the other information we have there. Um, also, be our friend on Instagram at the How to Love Lit Podcast, and also be our friend on Facebook through our How to Love Lit Podcast Facebook page. We keep everybody up to date on everything that's coming out. Peace out. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered.